Amen. Please be seated. It's good to see all of you this morning. I cherish our time together as we gather around the Word of God. This is our uh, continuation this morning of our study through the book of Mark. And believe it or not, as I have it mapped out, if the Lord does allow the plans that have been laid for the next few weeks, we have four more sermons from the Gospel of Mark. Just four more. We started this journey, I think, on May the 31st of last year. And we will complete this year on uh, November the 20th. And uh, that'll have us uh, up to the season of Advent, where we will start, rewind, and come back to the beginning of all of this when we look at the anticipation that is given to us in the Old Testament for the coming of our Christ. And we look into the New Testament passages of His actual coming. So I say to you this morning, we have four more sermons to go. The next three sermons, we will worship Jesus Christ through His suffering. We will worship Jesus Christ through his suffering. Only in Christianity can you say worship and suffering in the same sentence. But it is what we will be about. And then the very last sermon, we will worship Christ through his resurrection from the dead. And that will be uh, Mark chapter 16. So this morning we will be in Mark 15 verses 1 through 20. I ask you to turn there with me. And we will pick up in Jesus' second trial. He had two trials during his Passion Week and two trials to to render a guilty verdict and to uh, give him the death penalty, the death penalty that included a cross, a death on the cross. And in Matthew 15, we pick up where Jesus is delivered over to the Romans. He was tried first by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, and they found him guilty of blasphemy. They then need the Roman government involved in the sentencing and the execution of their death penalty, and we'll look at that this morning specifically. I want to take you first, keep your finger right there on Mark 15, turn back over to Mark 10, and we have this occasion foretold of very specifically by Jesus. Three times he told his disciples in Mark 8, 9, and 10, three times he said that he was going to be crucified, buried, and resurrected. Uh, Mark 10's version is the most specific. If you look with me in Mark 10, starting in verse 32, they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid, because Jerusalem was a dangerous place for this Messiah to go. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. And he said this, look in verse 33, See, we are going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. It's very, very specific. And we will literally see verse 33, or 34 actually, unfold This morning as we look at the trial that Jesus had before Pilate. So back over to Mark 15, starting in verse 1. Let's get the scene set for us and watch this specific prophecy that Jesus gave of himself in Mark 10 unfold. Mark 15, starting in 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests... As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council... And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Let me just set the scene and get some background here first. 
Pilate was the prefect of the Judean area of Rome that Jerusalem was situated in. He was the prefect from A.D. 26 through A.D. 38. We're right now at about A.D. 30. So he had been the prefect for four years in this Judean region. He was very evil. He was extremely mean-spirited. We have a lot of information on Pilate, even from secular historians. We can read very specifically some acts that he did that were absolutely vile against the Jewish people, as well as one of his most bitter enemies was Herod. And we're going to actually hear about Herod in just a little bit. So this was a really vile man. Now, in this trial of Jesus's, he doesn't seem that wicked. But, but rest assured, he is a very evil man. And he was severely hated by the Jews. It's so interesting that the Jews would take Jesus to him because they needed him even though they hated him because they needed him to do something that they couldn't do. We'll see more on that in just a moment. Why, and let's look at it now, why would they take Jesus to Pilate whom they hated? Well, they needed the Roman government to enact and execute the death penalty. I want you to listen to John chapter 18. Just listen to these verses. I'm in John 18, 28 to 32. Then they led Jesus. This is John's account of what Mark's telling us. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled to eat of the Passover. Now just pause right there for a moment and observe the hypocrisy. The governor's headquarters, a pagan ruler, a Gentile ruler, his headquarters during the Passover season could not even be trounced upon by the feet of Jewish people because it would make them dirty and unclean and unqualified to take the Passover. So they will not enter into the governor's headquarters, yet they will take Jesus to the headquarters. And all the while, they're not even considering the fact that their sentence and their persecution and the death penalty that they've laid on Jesus is defiling themselves in the most extreme way. It says they couldn't defile themselves so that they could eat the Passover. Well, I'm telling you that they're defiling themselves by killing the Passover, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's full of hypocrisy. I read on, verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to him, to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. There's the second reason that they need to take him to Pilate, or the second reason of their hypocrisy. We can't put someone to death. We've brought Jesus to you so that you will put him to death for us because we have sentenced him. We have sentenced him, but we won't enact upon the sentence because it is unlawful for us to do this. We need you to do this. Such hypocrisy. Such hypocrisy. Verse 32 of John 18 says this, this was to fulfill, this is John narrating, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So all of this happened and all of this Pilate trial happens because Jesus needs to die on a cross. 
And a cross is not the means of execution that Jewish people used. They used stones for blasphemy. So they needed the Roman government to kill him, and they needed the Roman government to kill him on a cross so that Jesus' words would be fulfilled. Because here is exactly what Jesus said long ago about his death. In John 12, he says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And John says he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Being lifted up from the earth is a crucifixion. And Jesus, earlier on in his life, in his life of ministry, a couple of years earlier, knew that he would die by being lifted up on some boards for the glory of his Father. So we have here a scenario where the Jewish leadership hands Jesus off to the Gentiles. And the handoff happens because they need the Gentiles, the Romans, to kill him. On a cross. Verse 2, still in Mark 15 now. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. They needed to find a charge when they took him to Pilate that would rile Pilate up and attract the judgment of Rome. I'm going to tell you, blasphemy was not going to get it done. The Roman government could care less about Yahweh, the God of the Jewish people. They could care less if God was blasphemed. The Romans were pagans. They were polytheists. They worshipped all kinds of gods. And so you really couldn't blaspheme any particular god because there were so many. The Jewish people were monotheists. There is only one God, and Jesus Christ Himself claimed to be that one God in the flesh. And they decried blasphemy to Him. Pilate could care less about that. If that's all they've got, there's no trial with Pilate. Pilate says, away from me. But, as Mark says in verse 3, the chief priests accused Him of many Things. I'm going to give you two that Scripture tells us specifically that they accused him of. They accused him of on false charges in Luke 23, verse 2 of this. They begin to accuse him saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to pay tribute to Caesar. Does that ring a bell? They came to Jesus and asked him, is it right for us to pay taxes? This was earlier in the book of Mark. I, can't not, I cannot remember right now what chapter that was. But earlier in the book of Mark, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar? And if you remember, Jesus said, bring me a denarius. And they brought him this coin and he held it up and he said, whose image is this? And they said, Caesar's. And what did he say? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God that which belongs to God. Is that saying do not pay taxes to Caesar? No. This is a lie. This is a false charge. He did not discourage the Jewish people from paying their taxes to Caesar. The second charge, he goes on in Luke 23 too. And they also said that he said he himself is Christ, comma, a king. There you have it. A king. You walk around on Roman soil declaring yourself to be a king. 
you will be found guilty of treason, and the punishment for that will be death, death on a cross. Now, Jesus never walked on this earth walking around saying, I am the king. Now, many said that of him, but he never declared, I am a king here to rule and reign over Caesar Augustus and his entourage. So they lied saying that he forbidden them from paying taxes and they lied saying that he claimed to be a king. But that last one, that king claim that they affixed to him was the one that brought the Roman charge of treason. And treason was punishable by death. And that death was to be administered through a cross. So this charge, it seems, stuck with Pilate. It got his attention because he asks Jesus very directly in verse 2, are you the king of the Jews? Now that question is phrased a little different in English. It's best read, you are the king of the Jews? So it's kind of a question and kind of a statement. And Jesus' response is very measured. It's not yes or no. It is, you have said so. (laughs) So unwittingly, Pilate himself proclaims the kingship of Jesus Christ. You are the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so. We could understand his, you have said so, also like this. You would be wise to consider the answer to that question. Because the answer to that question is ultra important to you And all the people in the history of the world. And so through all of this, we see that Pilate questioning him and Jesus answering not with yes or no, but encouraging him to think about the question that he asked. Ultimately, Pilate finds no guilt in Jesus. In fact, it says this, look in verse five, Jesus made no further answer. And he was largely silent if we look through this whole court case so that Pilate was amazed, amazed. Now, I want you to understand something. Amazement is not the same thing as faith. He was wowed and impressed by Jesus's steadfast silence, only answering when he's asked directly, are you the king of the Jews? Remember, I said last week, Jesus can't remain silent on that one. So he's amazed that Jesus is silent. This is the same defense that Jesus offered to the Sanhedrin in the previous trial with the Jewish people. His defense of himself was silence. And he was silent in this Roman trial, and it was just like the Jewish trial, not a silence of defeat or resignation, but a silence of submission to the Father's will. You remember Isaiah 53, 7? This was prophesied by Isaiah centuries before. It says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears, he is silent. So he opened not his mouth. That amazed Pilate. But that amazement did not save Pilate. Um... Just had a thought. Lamentations 3. I want you to listen to Lamentations 3. Jesus Christ lived out Lamentations 3, 25, and 26 to the fullest. This is a passage of Scripture that I have gone to often when I've had 
opponents and enemies who have wrongly charged me with things. And I, I would encourage you as you struggle through false accusations, which you no doubt will if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to go to this verse also if you're struggling with physical uncertainties in this life and you just feel like life is difficult to live through. Lamentations 3, 25 and 26 are some of the most cherished verses in my life. And here's they go. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. That's what Jesus did. (laughs) He waited quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And you know what Jesus Christ's salvation was from this trial? He was not saved from a cross, was he? He was not saved from being buried. No. His salvation from the Lord was resurrection on the third day. And Jesus Christ waited quietly and silently, which means he waited confidently That the Lord would give him salvation. Jesus said, if this cup can be taken from me, do it so, Lord. But if not, your will be done, not mine. It was the Lord's will that he would be crushed. And in, in that walking up to that crushing, he was quiet and silent. Because he knew God's will was best. And he knew there would be salvation for him. And we know now that that salvation was resurrection. Jesus knew that that salvation was resurrection. In John 10, 34, and on the third day rise again is what he said would happen to the Son of Man. So Jesus was silent out of reverence and confidence and trust that his Father would bring him salvation from this trial. And it would be on the other side of his death. So through the defense of silence, Pilate says, hey, I find no guilt in this man. Mark does not tell us this, but in the Gospel of John, and we get specifically that, that Pilate, understanding that at some point in this it comes up Jesus is a Galilean, so Pilate fires Jesus over to Herod, and he's like a hot potato. Oh, I, I don't want to deal with it. Here, you, Herod, you deal with him. And so Jesus goes before Herod. I'll go through this real quickly. When Herod learns that it's Jesus, Herod's excited. Uh, Luke 23, 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So Herod's hoping that he'll get some tricks performed by Jesus. This is a good deal. Remember Herod? Herod's the one that beheaded John the Baptist. And so here, this Herod is going to be brought into the trial. He wants to see some tricks by Jesus. And the scriptures tell us that before Herod, Jesus never once even opened his mouth. No dialogue whatsoever. Dead silence. And Herod says, this is no fun. Pilate, he's yours. And so he's back to Pilate. Interestingly, Luke 23, 12 says, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day because they had been up to that point bitter enemies. It's very interesting that Jesus Christ himself will be so controversial that even enemies of one another will become allies against Christ. And I want you to know we can taste that in this world that we live in. 
we can have enemies over here and enemies over there and because of our faith in christ those enemies can come together and persecute us with joy just like herod and Pilate did we're not removed from this why because there's a common denominator and his name is jesus christ So we have this hot potato back and forth between Pilate and Herod. Now we pick up in verse 6 of Matthew of Mark 15. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a na- man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. So we have here an option. And Pilate seems to be looking for options. He finds no guilt in Jesus Christ. He does not want to be responsible for his death. He really wants to bail out of this thing. Yet the crowds are building up in their fervor and their protest wanting Jesus Christ to be crucified and persecuted. Pilate doesn't want this. The testimony against him was not convincing. But we need to understand that Pilate could not afford an uprising in the territory that he was the prefect over. He had some experience with uprisings from these Jewish people in past years, and it never worked out well for him. He also had the pressure of Rome watching Jerusalem burn from a distance and they would render a judgment that, you know what, Pilate's not getting the job done over there. We're going to need to remove him and get somebody in there that can. And so Pilate is torn. He doesn't want an uprising in his midst, but he also doesn't want Rome ousting him from his post. And so he's got to do something. Well, the options are limited But one does surface. The people are accustomed to Pilate releasing one prisoner each year at the Passover. And they begin to clamor for one to be released. Pilate says, how about Jesus, the king of the Jews? I offer him you. Pilate thinks this is a simple solution. This is a a peaceful man. He's a rabbi. He's a teacher. He he hasn't gone and killed anybody. Let's, Let's just release this guy and call it good, folks, and get back to your Passover. I've got some games to go play. That's not how it worked out. We're introduced to this one called Barabbas. And this is a very significant man in Scripture. This is a very significant man to you and to me. Barabbas is a unique name. There's meaning in this name. The bar means son of. You tell me, what does Abba mean? Father, did I hear it? So Barabbas means son of the father. Let me show you this. You remember when Jesus is talking to Peter, he says, Simon Barjona. That Barjona means son of Jonas or John. So we have Barabbas. His name means son of the father. Well, who is Jesus Christ? Son of the father, correct? Father, if this cup can be taken from me, please, but not my will be done. Your will be done. 
So we have here in this moment in Scripture, in this moment in history, two sons of the Father. One named Jesus and one named Barabbas. Very interesting. Barabbas is to be released, not Jesus. Pilate offers the Jewish crowd a choice between two sons of the Father. It seems to be an easy choice. A peaceful rabbi or a murderous zealot? Which one do you want? And amazingly, these people clamor for Barabbas. Look in verse 11. The outcome of this is shocking and blasphemous in and of itself. Verse 11, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas. The fear of man pops up yet again. The people demand Barabbas. Why? Well, he's an insurrectionist. Barabbas was probably a zealot. Simon the Zealot was one of the disciples. The zealots were Jewish assassins that went about assassinating Roman military figures, Roman governors, Roman officials. Barabbas is captured and found guilty of murder in the insurrection against Herod, likely. Against Pilate, rather, likely. And they want him released. Why? Because he's acting like the Messiah that we were anticipating. The Jewish people were wanting a Messiah to come in with a sword and to get after it against the Romans and to free them with physical war and violence. Barabbas does this stuff in his name, Son of the Father. Jesus doesn't. They want Barabbas released. He's a hero compared to this Jesus, the blasphemer. I want you to stop and consider what these crowds yelled back. They say, crucify him twice. Crucify him. They say this about the one true son of the father. John tells us this, John 19, 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him and crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Wow. Jewish people. We have no king but Caesar. Blasphemy. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. They despised Pilate. They despised Herod. They hated Caesar. But they hated Jesus more. Crucify him. He's not our king. Caesar is. Blasphemy. John 1, 11, 
rings in your ears. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. They received a pagan Roman emperor named Caesar before they would receive Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is an amazing turn of events because we're at the end of the week. We're on Friday at the beginning of this week when Jesus rode into town on a donkey's colt. What are the people screaming out in that moment? Hosanna in the highest. (laughs) Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. You know what Hosanna means? You remember that sermon? Save us, we pray, is what Hosanna means. They're yelling, save us, we pray, on Monday. On Friday, they're yelling, crucify him. And what's amazing is, he will save them by being crucified. (laughs) Wow. Their salvation will come to them if they will believe. Now, they've got to believe that he died on this cross. They can be forgiven for yelling, crucify him. This is a God of grace and mercy. And God will bring forgiveness to the vilest, vilest of sinners. If they will believe that Jesus was a substitute for them on the cross. And he died even though he was out sin. And he paid the penalty, the death penalty that they deserved, that we deserved. And so save us in the early part of the week happens in crucify him at the end of the week. It's amazing. It's amazing. So Hosanna, early in the week, the most extreme opposite thing they could yell at the end of the week, crucify him. Those are extreme polar opposites. Yet they come together to happen. And they need each other to be saved. They need crucified and Crucifying is saving. Now, Jesus condemns these crowds, and the chief priests were the one that rebel roused these people up into this chant of crucify him. And Jesus condemned their actions about 12 hours earlier. I go back to John again. Just listen, John 15, 22. They're in the upper room, and Jesus says this. If I had not come and spoken to them, They would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. That's what Jesus says about this crowd and these priests that are yelling, crucify him. They hated me without a cause. They are guilty for this hatred because I came to them and I revealed myself to them. And I taught and I did many signs and wonders before them. And they would not believe because they hate me and they hate my father. And I am the son of a father. So their guilt is firmly, firmly established. And they cannot plead, we had no idea what we were doing. They knew. They knew. So now we move to a really troubling passage of Scripture. 
just because of its graphic nature and it's toned down and yeah, we need to suffer with Christ here. We need to walk through this. We'll do this fairly quickly. I want to look at the torture and the mocking of the King of Kings, starting in verse 15. And we'll march through. We'll conclude with 20 this morning, and then we'll pick up next in, in two weeks with the crucifixion. The Scriptures say in Mark fifteen sixteen that, uh, or starting in verse 15, they scourged Jesus and they delivered him to be crucified. Scourging, also known as flogging, was very violent. Uh, inhumane is not even a word that could be justifiably used for it. It's not enough. It was a grotesque practice that the Romans had perfected into a science. This wasn't casual whipping. This was strategic, scientific flogging. They would take a collection of leather straps and they would set within these leather straps pieces of, of bone with sharp edges and glass. Maybe at the end they'd put lead. There was no set number of lashes that they would beat a person with. It was a judgment that was made by sight. They were looking for bone to be revealed and entrails, organs. It was purposeful. It wasn't just sport. It was to initiate the dying process. Because if you just took a man and hung him on the cross, he could be there for days. I dare say a week. <laughs> so they needed to get him to death's door before they put him on the cross. And so they began his death with this flogging with these whips. And they beat him to a pulp. It's interesting. Scripture doesn't really give us the graphic details of the torture of Jesus Christ. If you look into Scripture, what really is emphasized is the emotional torment that Jesus went through. And the separation from God and the paying for the sins. It really wasn't about skin being pierced and and crown of thorns and the pain and it, it wasn't about that the pain was emotional my god my god why have you forsaken me and to experience his own people mocking him and tormenting him verse 16 says the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters and they called together the whole battalion of soldiers Wow, Jesus is no threat, but we need a battalion of soldiers. And then I just want to, let's just let the scriptures rain down on us and speak for themselves, starting there in verse 16, I'm sorry, 17. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And purple is the color of royalty. And they do this in a mocking way. They put him in a purple robe. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. This is mimicking the laurel crowns that kings would wear. But this one had thorns in it that penetrated skin and drew blood. Verse 18, and they begin to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spoke truth <laughs> with evil intent. 
Verse 19, and they were striking his head with a reed. There's a lot of debate about what that reed is. Some say it could have been a cane pole. Some say it could have been a literal reed like a cattail that we see in swamps and ponds. I think it was the cattail, and they're just mocking him by beating him with a piece of grass. They spit on him. Kneeling down, they paid homage to him. Verse 20, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. I, I just shuddered this week reading that. They did this with God. They did this with God in the flesh. Emmanuel. God with us. It's very likely that they were playing a game with Jesus. There, there was a Roman military board game, if you will, back in those days in a courtyard made with pave stones, these big pave stones would be squares on the board game. And they would etch into the, the pavement different symbols. And they would roll dice. And they would move a pawn across the courtyard onto the pave stones that had whatever number that they rolled to move to. It's very likely, Scripture doesn't tell us that, but it's very likely that that was what they were doing with Jesus as they mocked him with a purple robe and a crown and hit him with reeds. It's very likely they were playing this game. You can go to Rome today. I've not been over there, but they say you can find courtyards in many areas throughout uh, Israel in the Roman Empire where you can still find these board games etched into the pavestones. It's, it's true history. Perhaps that's what they were doing with Jesus. Can you imagine if he was a pawn, a token in a board game? They did this to God. And all the while, he remained silent. It is good to be quiet and wait for the salvation of the Lord. Quietly. He makes his way through the entourage of mocking. Waiting on the salvation of the Father. All in all, so much scripture was fulfilled in this. Uh, Isaiah 50 verse 6. The prophet wrote, I gave my back to those who strike. There's the flogging. And my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting prophetic about jesus jesus said it in mark 10 we read it earlier and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and three days later he will rise the salvation of the lord will be at hand i want you to know that whatever you envision as you read that passage of jesus being mocked and scourged and flogged whatever you have imagined in your mind it's not even close to the reality of it. You cannot get your mind close enough to understand and appreciate what it was like for God in the flesh to be a token on a Roman military board game. And he did it all because of love. 
I want to close by making two applications. We've done a lot of a lot of explaining the scripture and working through the details. I want to come now and you have not preached until you've applied the word of God. Let's make some application and I have two for you this morning. The first one, I want you to look at verse 7. Mark 15, verse 7 and 11. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And in verse 11, the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. As I said, Barabbas was a notorious criminal, a murderer in the insurrection. And I want you to know that as I look at this passage of Scripture, this week I discovered that I am Barabbas. And you are too. We are notorious sinners. We are murderous. Jesus said if you have anger towards your brother, you have committed murder in your heart already. We are murderers. We've been angry at our brothers, haven't we? Have we lied? I have. Have we lusted? I have. Have we coveted? Have we dishonored our father and our mother? Have we used the Lord's name in vain? Have we had other gods before us? Have we had idols that we bowed down to, thought we couldn't live without them? We are notorious insurrectionists against God. And we were released. And Christ was crucified. Innocent crucified, guilty released. And it's through that crucifixion that I can say to Jesus Christ, Hosanna in the highest. You are Barabbas in this story. You're on death row. The penalty for your sin, even one infraction against God, is you're found guilty of violating the whole law of God. Said James said that, I think. So we are notorious in the eyes of God, and we were released like Barabbas was. This is the essence of the most wonderful Christian doctrine that we call substitutionary atonement. Jesus Christ was a substitute for Barabbas and got the death penalty that Barabbas was on death row for. I want you to know I thought about this. I, I don't know. We never hear of Barabbas again in the scriptures. But Barabbas got substituted for twice if he ever believed in Jesus Christ. He got substituted for right here in this very moment when he is released to the crowds that clamor for him instead of Jesus. And if he dared to believe in Jesus Christ dying on a cross for his sins, he got released a second time. Double substitutionary atonement. <laughs> Never heard that term, but it sure rings good.
so yes, we need to understand that Barabbas prefigures you and me. The second application is this. Look at verse 12. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And I want you to know that this week it also occurred to me, every human being has to answer that question. Every one of us is faced with that question. What to do with Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews? How will you answer that question? If you deny Christ after hearing this message, you you perhaps have sat through the entire preaching of the Gospel of Mark, a year and a half almost. Or if you've just come this Sunday morning and this is your first sermon to hear ever or from this Gospel of Mark, you have heard the truth proclaimed about Jesus Christ. And so this question does apply to you. What shall be done with Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews? You've heard the truth. You've heard enough of the truth about Jesus to have no excuse. You remember Jesus said, I came and did all of these signs and they hated me without a cause. And they are without excuse because they've seen me and heard me. Well, you have seen Jesus and heard him right here. So the question is, what will you do with Jesus Christ? I urge you to yell at the top of your lungs, spiritually speaking, and maybe literally, Hosanna in the highest. Save me, I pray. And anything else that you utter besides that is the equivalent of crucify him. It's one of those two messages. One of those two answers. Save me in the highest, I pray. Or away with him and crucify him. Every human being has those two options when asked the question, What shall you do with this Jesus? You cannot plead ignorance. I'm, I'm sorry, you've come here this morning and you've heard the truth about Jesus Christ proclaimed, and you are no longer eligible for the ignorance claim you've heard the gospel this morning jesus died in your place you deserve the death penalty that he took on the cross and he rose on the third day that is the gospel that saves people if you believe that you're no longer ignorant and oblivious to the truth of jesus christ and so you have a very very important decision to make christ has been revealed And you must respond to him in worship with your words, with your thoughts in secret, and with your actions in your life. To not receive him, listen to this, to not receive him, to not say Hosanna in the highest, is to hate him without a cause. Jesus has given you no cause to hate him. No. There is no reason that you can find that you would hate 
Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. He has only done a multitude of things that merit your love. So don't hate him without a cause. Love him with a cause, and that cause is he died for you, though you were condemned to death. So I end with this. What shall be done with the man who is called the king of the Jews? The only answer is worship him. Worship him. Let's pray.